0: Why is it that allegedly wise adult human beings, CEOs some of them, United States senators some of them, a whole bunch of folks, want to ignore science and want to ignore mathematics and want to ignore physics, and somehow cannot bring themselves to do what we need to do? And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and um, actually talk about saving the planet i mean it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about quote saving the planet And if you said that to most people most people they think you're just a crazy tree hugging lefty liberal you know do-gooder or whatever and and there's no relationship but really that's where we are
1: greetings and welcome back to trench warfare politics that was your new u.s special presidential envoy for climate that was created out of thin air by joe biden the u.s special presidential envoy for climate is positioned it's in the executive office of the president of the united states and it has the authority over energy policy and climate policy within the executive branch as i said this was created in 2021 out of thin air by joe biden To push this green agenda down everyone's throat, not just here in the U.S., but to pressure it worldwide. If you remember in the last podcast, I went in depth on the Biden-Sanders communist manifesto that they came out with before the 2020 election, and how most of that in there was propaganda, how they used instances around the country, like the dams in Michigan, the Navajo Nation, things of that nature that had nothing to do with climate change. I told you in this this podcast, we're going to go into the authors of this whole agenda that they came out with, this part of the manifesto anyway, which was titled Combating the Climate Crisis and Pursuing Environmental Justice, which is anything but either one of those things. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to go in depth on John Kerry. There's quite a few authors to this. And I'm going to make, spread it over a few podcasts so I can re- go really in depth and so you know exactly who it is and where they're coming from. Who came up with the authorship of this this section. Now, some of these people I know, you know, because they've been in our lives for most of our lives for a lot of us, John Kerry being the number one guy on this, uh, the author of this this section of it. But I want to go in depth of who John Kerry is. Mo- many of you like me, you've heard of him, you know who he is, you know he's in the Senate, he's in the Senate for about 40 years right next to Joe Biden for a long time. Before that, he was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. But I want to go in depth of who he is now, what he's pushing and who he's rubbing elbows with, and just how in depth the radicalism for this green agenda really is. You heard him in that clip talking about how, how can it be that we're just a special set of human beings that we're the only ones that can see this. And that is the thought of the people with this green agenda, the co-author of this is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. As I said in my last podcast, we really know we know how really brilliant she is every time she opens her mouth when she doesn't have a script in front of her. Somebody else writes her scripts. I promise you, she was she was selected through a casting call to run for that position, not because she's brilliant, because she answered a casting call for a group that was doing that for quite a few. And there's a few of them in the Congress that are there. We'll go into that in another podcast as well. But to give you an idea of what you're dealing with, so as I said last time. And when I opened my, my first podcast there, I gave you the quote from Sun Tzu. And the quote that you many of you have probably heard, where he says, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will alf- also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. My goal with my podcast is to get everyone into the very first stanza, That quote, know the enemy and know yourself. And get it in your head that we do have an enemy in this country, and that's the Marxist left. Because trust me when I tell you, you are their enemy. All you have to do is look back over the last few years, back to 2016. If you were wearing a red MAGA hat, you got assaulted. If you were sitting in a restaurant, you may not get served. You may get run out, just like Ted Cruz, just like Sarah Huckabee. Happened to a lot of people in Trump's cabinet. And it was insisted on by members of Congress, like Maxine Waters, AOC. So to get it into your head to know the enemy, which is the Marxist left in this country, and to know yourself. For this podcast, I'm going to go in-depth with John Kerry, single him out. I'm going to single him out, I'm going to single AOC out, because there's just a lot that they, they bring to the table on this subject, because they're the two biggest proponents and the most radical on it, but they're the ones that are in charge. Now, when we look back on John Kerry, his... His outlook is set from early on in life. His father took a spot in the Department of the Navy's Office of General Counsel and became a diplomat in the State Department for the Bureau of the United Nations and for the United Nations Affairs back when he was a kid. In 1965, as uh, Vietnam escalated, he wrote a speech and won a prize for the best orator in the junior class for a speech that was critical of U.S. foreign policy, which in that speech he quoted as saying is, it's a specter of Western imperialism, That causes more fear among Africans and Asians than communism, and thus it is self-defeating, unquote. However, I guarantee you if back in 1965 you talked to the people in South Vietnam, they would have told you that it wasn't U.S. imperialism, that it was help keeping Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army from coming down and crushing them like they did in 1975 when they came down and finally won the war and took over and put them under the claws Communism. When he came back and came home from Vietnam, you've probably all seen it—the the video of where John Kerry sat there before Congress, and I believe, 1972, and referred to his fellow Americans, the servicemen over still over in Vietnam, as being or acting like Genghis Khan. John Kerry was—he was on the Swift boats, and if you remember back in the election that he was in, I believe it was 2004, that he was the term "Swift boated" John McCain. Then they changed their their laws came out. Changing what people could do and advertise and say later on. After that, but that's a whole whole other subject. But he came back from Vietnam and criticized the servicemen that were still over there, equating them to Genghis Khan. And then went on to run for for poli- go into politics, and that's when he became lieutenant general. I'm sorry, lieutenant uh, governor of Massachusetts. And then after that, in 1984, he got elected to the United States Senate. He was in the Senate from 1984 to 2013. So he's next to Biden in the Senate for almost 40 years. So Biden now picks him as this new made-up uh, presidential envoy for climate. You back up a little bit, when he got out of, the, left the Senate in 2013, he left the Senate to take over the Secretary of State position from Hillary Clinton. So you see all the circles in the, in the groups there. Not that you don't already know this, but to tighten up where we're going with all this and where they're going and how they know each other. So in 2015 while as Secretary of State, Kerry signed the Paris Agreement on climate change on behalf of the United States. So he put us into this really, really restrictive and authoritarian agreement on climate that affects all of us as well. And that's why when Trump was elected, they hated that he was elected because he got us out of this agreement. And people here really don't pay attention to these things, these climates, all these accords that are done in other countries. But you should because it's affecting you now. So I said, we're going to go down a bunch of rabbit holes And the Paris Agreement is one of the rabbit holes we have to go down because this is where Kerry took us. So I'm going to go over a few of the things that our country has been bound to by the Paris Agreement on climate change. If you've never gone and looked at the Paris Agreement, which a vast majority of Americans haven't because we just don't pay attention to those kinds of things, you'd be very surprised of how authoritarian it is in the language that's used in it. And if you study communism at all, like I have over the last 40 years, you see the same language in Marxism Maoism, everything communism, they change up the word and maybe here or there, and I'll I'll point some of these out, but it's the same exact wording, and it's the same exact outcome that's going to happen. So what the Paris Agreement is, is a legally binding international treaty on climate change. It was adopted by 196 parties in the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP21, in Paris, France, on December 12, 2015. And it went into force on November 4th, 2016. Now, to break it down a little bit for you, when you hear people talking about COP21 or COP27 that just happened or COP28 that's coming up in, I believe, Egypt, COP is Conference of the Parties. And the parties are everyone that is signing on to the Paris Agreement. So that's what COP, Conference of the Parties, stands for, and that's what it is. It's overarching The, the agreement's overarching goal is to hold the increase of the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels and pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Now, if you remember the last one podcast, I told you there's three three dates, three numbers you need to remember, 2030, 2050, and 1.5. 1.5 is the temperature goal they're trying to achieve by eliminating everything that exudes carbon, and that's by 2050, that's the 2050 date. So that's because the UN's, and they're going for those pre-industrial levels, that's because the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change indicates that crossing the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold risks unleashing far more severe climate change impacts, including more frequent and severe droughts, heat waves, and rainfall. Now, when I read that sentence, it contradicts itself within a few words because it says including more frequent and severe droughts and rainfall. Those two are diametrically opposed to one another, but that's their Senate. Now we're gonna go down the rabbit hole a little bit more because you get into all these and they come down with a whole bunch of groups, subgroups, panels, and all these different entities that you hear about. So what is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Well, it's a UN body for assessing the science related to climate change. It was created in 1988, by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program. So in other words, it's a bunch of unelected, not even bureaucrats, people that we don't even know who they are. They can interchange in and out of these groups at any time. We don't know who they are. They come up with whatever they come up with, and they put it out here for us to abide by and make it a law, a treaty, which then becomes law, and that's where we're at. So also the agreement, the Paris Agreement says that greenhouse emissions must peak before 2025 at the latest and decline 43% by 2030. If you remember in my last in the last podcast talked about how they wanted to cut emissions down by 2030. So now they're telling us the greenhouse emissions must peak before 2025, which is of right now, the end of August 2023, that's about 15 months away. So what is it they're going to do to cut down these emissions to, to make it peak in less than a year and a half and make it starting to decline by 43%, almost half of what we do now in basically six years. They're going to say that the imp- implementation of the Paris Agreement requires economic and social transformation based on the best available science. As I told you last time, when you hear the words transformation used by leftists, you can, it's synonymous with revolution transformation. They want to cut down or shut down everything the way it is and go in a different direction. There's a guy that did that before back in the mid-70s. His name was Pol Pot and he led the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Pol Pot wanted to lead Cambodia then change the name to Campuchia and in, back into an agrarian society. That cost a little over two million people their lives because of his radical agenda and his ideology and that of his followers that were radical and they, had, they ended up killing a little over 2 million people, which was about 25% of the population of Cambodia at that time. So keep these things in mind when you hear them talking about these transformations, economic transformations, social transformations, social transformations like the Cultural Revolution in China with, under Mao Zedong. Those are the things that come about with this kind of ideology. So the implementation of Paris Agreement requires economic and social transformation and it also goes says that they're going to make it work on a five-year cycle of increasingly ambitious climate action, or ratcheting up their words, carried out by countries. Okay, works on a five-year cycle of increasingly increasingly ambitious climate action carried out by countries. There's two things in that sentence right there. When you see or hear in these types of things where they're saying a five-year cycle. Go back, if you study communism, you've heard of Mao Zedong's five-year plans. He had a whole set of five-year plans, which the second five-year plan included the Great Leap Forward, which it's an estimated around 50 to 100 million people starved to death under that plan because he exported all of their grain to Russia, because what he, what he was open to do is export grain back to Russia in, the, in hopes for getting and the, acquiring their atomic capabilities, because that's what he wanted was— was atomic weapons so he could go after Taiwan even back then. So when you hear that five year cycle, just put in their five year plan and put in their Mao Tse Tung five year plans that still went up and were still going in effect up until the 90s. The other part of that sentence I want you to pay attention to is when they do the five year cycle, just like Mao Tse Tung did the five year plan, they say right here increasingly ambitious climate action. Now you read into that what you want but it means forceful authoritarianism because I say carried out by countries. When you say countries, just insert the word government because that's the only one that's, that can carry out actions by countries is government. And you see it now being carried out by this government, the federal government and state governments like Gavin Newsom, Hochul in New York, uh, Gretchen Whitmer up in, in Michigan. You see a lot of these different elected officials at these high levels of governors or presidents, envoys, whatever the case may be, they're the ones that speak the most authoritarian and the most forceful of implementing these types of actions. And I haven't started and gotten into the U.N. secretary, who's very, very authoritarian, much less Klaus Schwab with the World Economic Forum. We'll get to all that. And I'm giving you the idea of this is who's John Kerry, who's unelected, is making the promises and the treaties with all of these these leaders about what America is going to do. The agreement goes on to say that since 2020 countries have been submitting their national climate action plans known as nationally determined contributions. Each successive NDC or a nationally determined contribution is meant to reflect an increasingly higher degree of ambition compared to the previous version. So remember, go back increasingly, increasingly ambitious climate action now increasingly higher degree of ambition compared to the previous version. Just like Mao Zedong did in his five-year plans, he kept ratcheting down and ratcheting down and ratcheting down on the farmers and the peasants about how much work they had to do and how little food they got to keep so he could export it. The Paris Agreement reaffirms that developed countries should take the lead in providing financial assistance to countries that are less endowed and more vulnerable, while for the first time also encouraging voluntary contributions by other parties. Now, that, if you go back to the first podcast, you remember I talked very, very heavily on the financial aspect of this whole thing. BlackRock, Blackstone, State Street, all of the biggest companies on Wall Street and in the world putting out all this money towards climate change, ESG, all of these things. The Inflation Reduction Act had nothing to do with inflation, had everything with supporting green technology and this climate agenda that we're talking about here they go on to say that climate finance is needed for mitigation because large scale investments are required to significantly reduce emissions so they're getting the large scale investments i'm going to do i'm going to have another podcast where i'm just talking about the funding where it comes from the rabbit trails that your tax dollars go down just within our government to get out to these private entities by way of grants by way of just giving money away and not to just, to american entities but just shipping it overseas to various countries into projects you've never heard of, we never heard of. You just have to go down these rabbit trails and find them. And it's hard. It's a lot of digging, but they're out there to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars. So with the Paris Agreement, countries established an enhanced transparency framework, an ETF. Under the ETF, starting in 2024, countries will report transparently on actions taken and progress in climate change mitigation, adaptation measures and support provided or received, It will also provide for international procedures for the review of the submitted reports. So everything here is done from the world level. There is no national government level on this. It's all from the world level. National governments are putting into it, but everything is is dictated from a world level. So if you think that you don't have a world government in place, highly suggest you think again, because when they go to Davos in Switzerland, that's exactly what they have up on the huge LED lit backdrop behind them. It says, World Government Summit. Not making this up, it's there, and they're out out front with it and very forward with it. So the information gathered through this ETF will feed into the global stock take, which will assess the collective progress towards the long-term climate goals. I'm not sure what they're using and what they're referring to as global stock take. I haven't been able to find anything on that. But they tell you that it's going to assess the collective progress. Now, if you know anything about communism, go back and read the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels themselves. That's exactly all they talk about is collectivism, which is just communism. And they're talking about collective progress towards the long-term climate goals. And that's what they're doing. They're planning a long-term. We sit here and look short-term at what's happening right in front of us. We have to go out, and we have to fight this as a long-term ordeal as well because that's all they're planning on. They have their, they have their agenda all the way out to 2050, and they've had it to 2050 for quite a while. We just haven't paid attention to it. But now it's hitting home when things come up where they're banning any type of gas vehicles in California, where they're banning gas stoves in California and New York, when they're starting to clamp down on your life on these little bitty things that government has no business being into, they finish off by saying that they'll lead. This will lead to recommendations for countries to set more ambitious plans in the next round. So, like I said, it's always a ratcheting up. It's more, when they say ratcheting up or more ambitious plans, that means clamping down on your freedoms, your choices as a private citizen. Now, back to John Kerry. As I stated, he started this position. On January twentieth, twenty twenty-one, became the first person to ever hold this new made-up position by Joe Biden for the special presidential envoy for climate. Yet no one knows exactly what they do. No one knows who is in his office. There's no board. they've put out nothing what their budget does. They put nothing out what carbon they have emitted, which is required by law. They've put out no no board of chain of command or any structure of who's in their office. Even though the Congress has requested that numerous times and with numerous freedom of information requests or FOIA requests, which Kerry's officers responded that they're too busy to get to that. And if they do, there's so many of them, they won't be able to get to them and answer them until at least 2025, which is a violation of the FOIA Act, which says that a governmental entity that gets a, a, resp- gets a FOIA request has to respond within 30 days. I want you to listen to one of the Republican representatives in Congress. His name is Brian Mast. He's a republican out of florida and he's the chair of the foreign affairs committee and i want you to hear his opening statement a hearing they had with john kerry and just john kerry about his new department and their lack of transparency about everything their budget who works there their travel everything and he says things better than i could ever say them so take a listen to what he has to say to john kerry
2: subcommittee on oversight and accountability will come to order the purpose of this hearing is to examine the State Department's climate policy and the budget of the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate's office. I now recognize myself for an opening statement. As we examine the State Department's climate agenda and budget, we are joined today by former Secretary of State John Kerry. Thank you for being here today. First ever Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. Mr. Kerry, you're sitting in a newly created position But from all of the research that I've done in two years, you've largely managed to avoid any real oversight or accountability in that position. Now, my community cares about this as an issue. We sit on Florida's East Coast. We felt the consequences of environmental disaster. I'm a member of the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, a co-chair of the Roosevelt Conservation Caucus. And I believe that it's critical that we do work to defend our environment, clean air, clean water, public health. Protecting our environment is important. I don't know a person literally in Congress that doesn't believe that protecting our environment is important. But as you and I have discussed and I've said this to you before, you can't worry about the efficiency of your home if you can't make rent, if you can't make your war, your mortgage payment, and you can't worry about the emissions of your automobile payment, of your automobile if you can't make the, the payments on your car. You can't worry about the way America is electrified, or you have to worry about the way America is electrified as we look to the future to make sure that our electric grid can support the policies that are being pushed and it seems in many cases like you are hell-bent on enacting policies not by votes through the house of representatives and the senate but by fiat secretary blinken has said that your leadership will be indispensable in weaving climate into the fabric of everything we do at state department personally I don't believe that climate should be the focus of every part of diplomacy, which is the job of the State Department. And I believe that we probably disagree about that. But regardless, it is clear to me that you, even having served as a longtime senator, you are willing to push the envelope of what it means to live in a constitutional republic in order to get the agenda that the administration sees enacted. And no matter how somebody watching this hearing feels about climate change, I believe that that should be of large concern to them. This is my chief concern about your office. You're serving on the National Security Council. But you're not confirmed by the senate in your previous role as secretary of state you unilaterally entered our nation into some of the largest agreements like the joint comprehensive plan of action the iran nuclear deal unilaterally bound americans to set standards that would dramatically increase their cost of living or affect their way of life in the paris climate accords and i believe that speaks volumes about your overarching philosophy as it applies to governing and what you're doing now as what some people have called the climate czar Mr. Kerry, nobody voted for you in this body. It seems like, once again, the rules don't apply to the president's inner circle. He has called you his best buddy. That brings me to my second concern that I want to speak about today, and it's just basic levels of transparency, the mechanisms of transparency in government that your office has not participated in to be accountable to the people. Every time you travel to a climate summit or King Charles coronation or the wedding of the Crown Prince of Jordan, you're supposed to document the carbon emissions generated by your trip. Your office has failed to do so. You're supposed to produce an organizational chart of your office. Your office only did so when there was a lawsuit filed and filled in none of the names of the people that work in your office. You ignore most Congressional requests for documents, have ignored those from the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Oversight Committee for months. You're supposed to respond to FOIA requests but claim that it would take years to produce basic budgetary information, in some cases not willing to release it until 2024. You're supposed to be clear about the work that you do on behalf of the American people, but you don't have a landing page on the State Department's website. I don't believe this is how you fulfill the White House's promise to bring transparency and truth back to government. And it is my assessment that you are afraid of the American people knowing exactly what it is that you are up to at places like the climate change conferences that you attend. You are headed off to COP28 soon. You've been to COP27 and other summits and purporting to represent the United States of America. But you're not representing the United States of America's people in my opinion i believe that you are representing a far left radical agenda those are my beliefs but the truth is because of the lack of transparency no one really knows exactly what it is that you are representing
1: now you heard brian mast blast Kerry, and he speaks for pretty much everybody at least on the right anyone that's not blinded by this climate agenda and knows better but i want you to hear this exchange between Brian Mast and John Kerry and the arrogance of John Kerry telling him he's not going to answer his question, he's not going to tell him who works in his office, he'll do it at the appropriate time. As though answering to Congress and the taxpayers who fund his office and fund everything about him don't deserve to know who's working in that office of government that we pay for and know where all of our money, our taxpayer money is going to, not just in the US, but around the world.
2: I would love to know the names of the individuals that actually answer to you. Who is your deputy envoy for climate?
0: I have two deputies, very experienced people, Rick Duke and uh, Sue Biniaz. But I'm not going to go through all the Rick names Rick Duke here. and who? Mr. Chairman, Sue Biniaz, who's one of the most experienced negotiators in the world. Mr. Chairman, who your let me just say you, Mr. Chairman, I'm not going to fill them in here. Who's the principal deputy for climate in your office? As I just said to you, Mr. Chairman. Who's the chief of staff? I am going to go through the normal process. I'm
2: not going to spend my time arguing about it. You said you're not going to answer now? Mr. Chairman, don't don't just cut me
0: off. What I'm trying to do, where there are circumstances requiring that someone know who the person is, the State Department has complied and, and done every that. office, where every consular, there is not every a bureau, requirement they have a they, hierarchy. You where go there into is the military base, it says
2: Joe Biden, it says the secretaries, it says there's a hierarchy. This is standard practice for government. We not have presented that it's not
1: standard with practice. the it long notification. Enough. I wanted you to hear the arrogance of John Kerry refusing to answer anything about who works in his office. He'll give it when he wants to. He'll give the FOIA request when he wants to. He'll talk about whatever he wants and be transparent whenever he wants because he's a liberal left just like Joe and Hunter Biden case the laptop case Burisma Ukraine Russia China Hunter Biden's art all of these things stay in secret and nobody answers for anything in this administration I told you before how they raise everything to the highest level everything is a crisis everything is going to burn everything's going to flood they even go further John Kerry does it many times AOC does it many times. Well, they compare their fight with climate change, they compare it to World War II. I want you to listen now. how John Kerry equates climate change to World War
0: II. Like World War II, when we knew that in order to win the war, and we didn't know it in the winter of 1943, but in order to win the war, we had to organize ourselves to take control of the skies and take control of the seas and be able to smash the, you know, the the battlements had been built along the coastline of france and belgium and netherlands and so forth and we had to get through we broke we did it climate crisis my friends is the test of our times and while some may still believe it is unfolding in slow motion no this test is now as acute and as existential as any previous one my mother and members of her family fled france as an occupying army moved through the country. Their house was ultimately bombed and burned to the ground. And when I was just four years old, my mother brought me there to visit the ruins, her first visit back since the war. Almost nothing was left, and the skeleton of a burned-out building rose into the sky with one stone staircase. That is my earliest memory. And I mention it because I am glad to have it. Because like most in my generation, I grew up with a visceral understanding of how close the world came to chaos and how allies and alliances dedicated to order and openness, common interests and shared values made all the difference.
1: So in addition to the arrogance that you heard about him refusing to answer any questions about who's in his office or anything else he doesn't want to answer to Congress at that time, this group of people also thinks that they're involved in something that's equivalent of world war two or defeating Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. That's literally what their mindset is. And he says it there himself. It's not my opinion. It's them saying so. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez makes many references to that. And I'll have her video or her audio clips in the next podcast, whenever I single her out, but this is their mindset. And in world war two, there were axes and allies enemies. So th- The enemy for these people is you and I who do not buy into their agenda. And that's why they speak and doing things such a forceful and ambitious, ratcheting up type of manner. They tell you that's their words. They tell you that's what they're going to do. That's what needs to be done. And that's what they're ultimately going to do. And sooner, much sooner rather than later, even though there's some, the the end of it should be later in 2050, but everything by 2030, which is only a few years away. And they're going to do this by many avenues. Because I've read all the avenues that they want to go, and the biggest one is the financial. Now you hear them speak many times, and that's what they all—they always do reference—is the finances, whether it's public or private. That's why these public-private partnerships that I've been talking to you about—that's where they come in, and they're so important to them. Like BlackRock, Blackstone, State Street—all of these big Wall Street hedge funds worth trillions, of, literally trillions of dollars—that's how they're going to get this. But they're also going to do it through taxation. That's what the Inflation Reduction Act was about. It was nothing about inflation reduction. It was all about climate. If you go and read it, and I explained it in my last podcast, there are literally hundreds of billions of dollars allocated to the green agenda, not just here, but giving away around the world. Your tax dollars, my tax dollars. These are facts. If you remember in the last podcast, I brought up the things about the dams in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, the Navajo Nation, those things that they brought up as being climate crisis, environmental justice, those things they put in there, propaganda-wise, they put them in there as single incidents, but they didn't follow up on what actually happened to them the way I did. But they used them as attributions to climate change, what the the cause and effect of climate change can be. When they had nothing to do with climate change, these things were all set in motion long before, and it was all failed Democrat policies, failed ownership policies or fo- failed ownership responsibilities, fraud, waste all kinds of things of that nature. Kind of like we're finding out right now on Maui, how they came out and tried to blame it on climate change, for these wildfires burning so intensely and so out of control. And it really had to do with failed Democrat policies, waiting to implement green infrastructure, letting the power lines go so that they were not managed, sparking all the time, introduced a new invasive grass from Africa that was very dry, almost hay-like, it was always ready to be caught on fire. And so then it really didn't happen whenever they started having a, uh, when they had a hurricane just south of Maui and the, the high winds. And I have seen the videos, the cell phone videos, that there were high winds. There's some reports out there that winds weren't that strong because the hurricane was so far away. I've actually watched cell phone videos from people that were there. And there was, it may not have been 80 miles an hour, but I guarantee you they were a good 35 to 45 miles an hour, which is a lot for a fire. It'll fan it and go quick. But the point being is it had nothing to do with climate change. It had to do with all man-made, as you're seeing, man-made errors, not sounding alarms, not taking care of the wires that were going down into these grasses, having water turned off, all kinds of failed liberal policies under failed Democrat, really socialist government. Keeping that in mind, I want you to listen to John Kerry once again, talking about how climate change is now becoming a security issue for this country which it's not listen to all the things that he lists that should be under the umbrella of national security. Now I want you to connect that with the possibility that's being talked of, of Biden coming out with a climate lockdown because it's a national emergency like COVID was and doing that kind of lockdown. Cause now you're seeing the masks come back out. You're seeing colleges do it. So this isn't theory. These are things that are actually going on. When people tell you that these are conspiracy theories, well, when they're saying them and they're doing them, they're not theories, they're facts. That's why I present to you their words, their writings, their legislation, everything that is their words. Because if it's a theory, if it's conspiracy, well, really what it is is it's conspirators against the rest of us. Listen to John Kerry in this short audio clip right here talking about national security and being a
0: security crisis. There's a genuine focus on climate as a security issue in every respect, health, food, economies. Uh, national security. If you listen to the scientists, which not enough people are, Mm -hmm. the last week they have described as terrifying and as uncharted territory. When you see the risks of what is happening already with global ice melt, with challenges of fires, of uh, mudslides, of heat, people dying from the level of heat, the quality of air, Mm -hmm. people are dying around the world. In the millions, by the way, about eight million people a year die from that. And, and it comes from one thing, this is not complicated. It is the way we have chosen to propel our vehicles, heat our homes, light our factories and businesses. It's, it's the provision of power, burning fossil fuel without capturing the emissions. I want you to take note of a couple of things in that, that audio clip
1: right there. Number one, here he says that it's a security issue in every aspect and goes on the list, food, the economies, things of that nature. In order for things to be shut down, for them to be able to claim everything as a crisis or a national security issue that they need to shut things down, they have to lay the, frown, the foundation like this. This isn't me making it up. This is me going off of what his exact words are. It's a security issue in every respect. Those are his words. The other thing I want you to take note of is how they use the, num- the number 8 million people have died for deaths of uh, deaths from climate change or heat or cold they use everything they they literally use all these things that people die from extreme heat and extreme cold everything in between from the pollution from the particulates about 12 years ago the local CBS affiliate here in Houston did an interview with some people that were the same aspect uh, the green agenda and one of them i believe was from Sierra Club he was one of the one of the doctors that they use To cite all their information, he made a similar claim that how 33,000 people had died the year before from air pollution. But they never followed up with a question of how he found out that these 33,000 people died of what he said they did. I literally got on the phone and called him the next day, and I spoke to him in person. I called him, asked him, how did you all come up and verify that these 33,000 people died from climate Pollution and particulates, like you said on the show last night, did you review thirty-three thousand autopsies? Then you started backpedaling faster than a crawfish. But they, that's why I, I say you have to follow these things down. There is no way they verify how these eight million. They don't even know the number. If you're going to tell me somebody out in sub-Saharan desert somewhere died, you know about it? No, I don't think so. Not flying around on your private jet and uh, hanging around with your big wigs in Davos and Belgium and D.C., New York, San Francisco. Now, you're not hearing about some poor schmuck over there in the Middle East somewhere that died out there in the middle of nowhere. They don't know it. And these are the things you need to you need to call them on when they try and spout facts like this. Ask them how they're backing their facts. If they're claiming deaths, we want to know what autopsy reports that you saw, how you came to these numbers, how you know for a fact, just like in COVID, when you claimed it was a COVID death, when they may have had COVID, but had leukemia and were 86 years old, but yet you claimed it was a COVID death to raise the numbers. But on this thing here, this climate change, they don't have the numbers and they don't have the facts to back them up when they claim these types of things. There is a lot of pushback in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate against Biden, against Kerry, against Kamala Harris with their green agenda. Those three are pushing it bigger than anyone. And they're under the thumbnail of Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, all these other world-level type of government entities that want to be world government entities. I want you to take a listen to Ted Cruz, one of my senators. I've always been a Ted Cruz fan. Whether you like him or not, he does make a lot of pushback against things like this and puts it very, very eloquently. Just take a listen to him. He puts all these things into proper perspective. Just take a listen.
3: The Green New Deal is a disaster. It's a disaster for American families. It's a disaster for jobs. It is a disaster for our national security. It's a disaster, ironically, for the environment, and it's a disaster politically. If you want abundant jobs, you want low-cost, abundant energy. If you want families to be able to make their budgets fit their needs, you want abundant low-cost energy. If you want to protect the national security of the United States and not send billions to nations who hate us and want to kill us, you want abundant low-cost energy. And if you want to protect the environment, you want abundant low-cost energy. One of the most revealing aspects of this debate is the radical left's Green New Deal is not about the environment. Because under their stated objectives, Their policies fail. If you judge the policies of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and John Kerry solely on the criterion, do they reduce pollution, do they reduce greenhouse gases? The Biden-Harris-Kerry policies fail badly. First day in office, Joe Biden, with a stroke of a pen, shut down the Keystone Pipeline, destroyed 11,000 jobs, destroyed 8,000 high-paying union jobs. But the result of that, it's not that the Canadians are letting the oil remain in the tar sand. No, nope. instead, they're continuing to develop that oil. But now that oil, one of two things is happening to it. Either it is being put on trucks or trains going south to the United States, or it's being put on ships going west to China. In both instances, it pollutes more, it emits more greenhouse gases, and there's a greater risk of spills. The safest way to transport that oil with the lowest emissions is a pipeline. And yet, Biden, Harris, and Kerry do not care. Likewise, on day one, Joe Biden shut down all new federal leases on federal lands for oil and gas production. U.S. production is going down as a result. Prices are going up, heating oil. When your heating oil prices go up this winter, you can thank Joe Biden and John Kerry and Kamala Harris for that. When you pay more at the pump for a gallon of gas, California just a couple of weeks ago was selling gas for $7.49 a gallon. When you fill your tank and spend a hundred bucks to fill your tank, you can thank Joe Biden or John Kerry or Kamala Harris. But the result of that, suddenly, the White House realized that sky-high gas prices hurts working men and women. It's bad politically, as last night demonstrates. And so now they are absurdly urging OPEC to produce more. Joe Biden is begging, russia saudi arabia iran produce more oil the oil and gas they produce is dirtier it pollutes more if the only test is are we helping the environment the biden kerry Kerry, harris plan pollutes more and emits more greenhouse gases what nation had the single greatest reduction in co2 emission last year the answer and it's not even close is the united states of america we led The world, what nation is the world's greatest polluter? China. China was nowhere to be found at this conference in Scotland. China's producing new coal plants. Why is America leading the world in reducing pollution and carbon dioxide emission? Because on a widespread scale, we're substituting natural gas for coal in electricity production. If the only thing you care about is reducing pollution and and greenhouse gases, then you should embrace natural gas in particular because it is reducing pollution and greenhouse gases more than anything else on earth and yet joe biden and kamala harris and john kerry are trying to kill it one final point not only do they not believe what they're saying but their hypocrisy is rampant headed to this climate conference these officials flew in giant jets john kerry has a private jet that has flown dozens of times this past year all around the country I don't know about you, but I don't have a private jet. I don't believe any of the people on this stage have their own private jet. John Kerry, when asked about his private jet, said, really, for someone like me, it's the only way that makes sense to travel. What dripping condescending arrogance. You know, when we travel, I'm in the exit row on Southwest Airlines. That hypocrisy demonstrates they don't mean what they're saying.
1: If you remember my last podcast, I told you to remember two books when we're dealing with this subject, 1984 and Animal Farm. What Ted Cruz is talking about right there at the end about John Kerry flying in his private jet because the other way just doesn't work for him. Remember back to Animal Farm, by the end of the book, they went from four legs good, two legs bad, and all animals are created equal to all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. Rules for thee, but not for me. With John Kerry and these small group of people that he talked about, they can really see what the problem is, but they don't—they can't abide by the rules that they want for everybody else because they have to violate those rules to make the world a better place. And that's exactly what he's talking about because that's exactly what they're doing. I appreciate you joining me for this podcast. Uh, this is just a breakdown of John Kerry. There are several authors to this section of this Biden-Sanders Communist Manifesto. The next one I might hit is uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But these two are the co sponsors of this section of this manifesto and they're the two most outspoken get the most recognition and I wanted to really break down John Kerry because he's been in politics for so long and the position that he's in he's the most vocal of everything and has the most power and influence around the world literally with the world economic forum with Wall Street with the White House with state governors in the US Senate and the House for that matter and I just wanted you to get a breakdown of what he's doing how he got there and what he's saying in his own words so that you can hear him, what he's saying has to happen, how he wants it to happen and how it's going to come down on you. So join me on the next podcast where I will do the same thing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and one other of the authors of it that uh, was really the, the founder of a little NGO that uh, AOC really supported and uh, a lot of video and content out there from them having conversations so until next time, get in the trenches, stay in the trenches because that's where we are. We have been for a while and we're going to for quite a while longer, as you can see. They have no inkling to give up what they've achieved and what they've gained, which is quite a bit, and they still have a lot to go in a, quite a few different areas, not just the green agenda, but digital currency, passport, uh, vaccine passports. It all ties together, and I will tie it all together for you through a lot of podcasts. But thank you for joining me and we'll see you next time.